a year and a half ago, my dad had a heart attack while he was renovating my parents' basement. And uh, my mom came home. Uh, she found him blue and cold on the floor. She's a nurse, so she did CPR. She called 911, got rushed to the hospital, and they put a stint in his heart. And his heart was actually perfectly fine after that. Uh, but for however long he was laying there, before my mom found him was time that his brain was going without oxygen. Uh, so for two weeks, my dad sat in the hospital bed in this coma-like state, hooked up to all these machines that were keeping his body alive, and the doctors were running all kinds of tests uh, to determine how bad the damage was and everything else. And all along, the big question was, how much brain damage occurred, and would he ever recover? So my family, my mom, my sister, and I, for those two weeks, day and night, are just waiting in this waiting room essentially, praying for dad, going in every once in a while, praying for him, waiting. And uh, one day, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, um, my mom, my sister, and I and our families were sitting in this waiting room. I can still picture exactly where in the waiting room we were sitting. And then up walks this doctor, and he asks us uh, if we would be willing to go with him to a private room to discuss the situation. And uh, it was ominous feeling. I remember my heart sunk and we got up and we followed this doctor through the lobby of the waiting room, through some double doors into this private room. And we walk in and there are six or seven other doctors or nurses sitting in there. And we sat down and honestly, without any hesitation, the doctor just tells us, you know, your dad um, suffered major brain damage. He's never coming back. He's gone. He's never going to recover. And uh, we cried. We asked a lot of questions. And the doctors just kept breaking the bad news. And as I think through that conversation, I think I understand a little bit better now how difficult the dynamic was in that room that day. Because it's hard to receive bad news, uh, but it's also hard to deliver it. And as I've prayed through and poured over today's passage, I find myself in such a similar position as those doctors. I find myself in this position of having to deliver a hard word of bad news from God to you. And I've just been praying so hard that God would give you the grace to receive it. And the bad news is, unless you repent, you will perish. Turn with me to Luke Luke 13, please. Luke 13, we've been moving our way through Luke's gospel. We've already made it through 12 whole chapters. Today we land in Luke 13, uh, starting in verse 1. This is the Word of God. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise Perish. Now, this exchange is not coming out of the blue. It's not happening in a vacuum. It's coming out of this full chapter, all of chapter 12, which Jesus is, is, is bringing our attention to this idea of judgment. 
Now remember, Jesus and his disciples are journeying to Jerusalem. They're on this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And on the, along the way, Jesus is taking all of these intentional moments to instruct, to teach, not only big crowds of people, but his disciples. Uh, chapter 12 in particular reads like one big discourse where Jesus just points his listeners to the reality that in the midst of all of this stuff happening around them in the world, there are more important eternal things happening. And in light of this spiritual crisis that people are in as sinners, Jesus has emphasized this urgent need to fear God, to obey God, to trust Him, to be rich toward Him, to be ready for Him, to anticipate Him, to acknowledge Him knowing that judgment is coming. In uh, chapter 12, verses 54 and 56, which we looked at last week, uh, Jesus reminds us with judgment in mind that uh, uh, it's, imp- it's important, it's appropriate for his followers to interpret the times, right? He says you're interpreting the weather. You can tell what's happening in the weather by looking around. You're not interpreting the times. And this uh, discussion of judgment is exactly where chapter 13 picks up where some people in the crowd and Jesus are talking about these two events. But they're two events that the people in the crowd are not interpreting rightly. The first event involves Galileans. Verse 1, There were some present at that very time who told them about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now we don't have many details about this event. In fact, this is the only time in all of the Bible that it's referenced. It is not referenced anywhere outside of Scripture whatsoever at all. But that doesn't mean it didn't truly happen. Uh, We know historically that Pilate was a cruel, he was a severe ruler, so it would have been well within his character to do something harsh. And uh, most plausibly, uh, a good possibility of discerning what's actually being referenced here is to say that there were these Galilean Uh, pilgrims who came down from Galilee like Jesus and his disciples for the purpose of worshiping in the temple. And while they are offering sacrifices to God, they are killed by the Romans. Which would have just been this horrifying thing. Can you imagine? They're in the temple. They're sacrificing to God. And they are killed to the point where their own blood is mingling in with the blood of the animals that they've sacrificed to God. This is This is horrendous. On so many levels for Jesus' listeners. And then the second event is brought up by Jesus this time. And he mentions 18 Jerusalemites who were killed when a tower fell on them. Verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. This time the tragedy was not carried out by the hands of men. Right, It was a tower that fell on people. Nevertheless, it's a calamity that took place that Jesus and his listeners were all apparently aware of. They're all, they all heard about it. They're familiar with this event. But as Jesus points out, the crowd is not interpreting these things rightly. And Jesus, who's always a step ahead, if we've seen anything so far in Jesus' dialogue with other people, one of them, I mean, it's, Jesus is always a step ahead of these guys, Right? And Jesus proves it again here. He jumps right to the heart of the matter. He knows what his listeners are thinking. He knows what they're assuming. That they're thinking these people died in these horrific ways because they must have been greater sinners than everyone else. And God must have been judging them for some great sin. And this was a common line of thought among people in the Bible. That's not uncommon. Uh, Oftentimes we'll see as we read through the Bible that 
people interpret temporal tragedy as a divine response to sin. And certainly there are times when Jesus responds to unrepentant sin with uh, some sort of judgment like that. But it's not that cut and dry, is it? Remember Job? I mean, Job suffers. This man endures hardship. And his friends think it's because he sinned. But as, we, as readers, we understand, no, God had a purpose for his suffering. In John chapter 9, it's assumed that Jesus and his disciples, when they encounter this man born blind, that he's blind because he was a sinner. Look at verses 1 to 3, John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus clarifies, no, no, no. He's not blind because of his sin because God's judging some sin. He's blind because I have a purpose of displaying my own glory through this man's blindness. So according to Jesus, the simplistic way of interpreting earthly tragedy is just not adequate. And here's why the crowd needs the correction. If they were to think that tragedy is coming upon these Galileans and these Jerusalemites because they're specially sinful then they could uh, be tempted into thinking, well, there's no tragedy happening in my life. I I must be favored by God. I must be blessed by God. I must be right with God. That the absence of tragic events in their own lives must mean that God is blessing them. And I love Jesus' response here. Uh, He knows what his listeners are thinking. And he asks these pointed, direct questions that just gets right at the heart of the issue. There's no pretense. He cuts right through it. He says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He's asking them these questions of degree. Do you think their sins were worse than everyone else's? That's why this is happening? And Jesus asks the questions only to answer them himself with this emphatic no these people did not die in these, in these tragic ways because I'm judging some greater sin. And by implication, the absence of tragedy in your life does not necessarily mean that you're right with God either. And here's where Jesus just takes this brilliant turn in the conversation. As he has done so many times already, he brings this discussion about worldly things and current events around to more important eternal matters. Twice, Jesus says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus Jesus is saying, you think these Galileans and these Jerusalemites were judged because they were more sinful than you? Well, I've got news for you. Unless you repent, you're all going to perish. And this is the waiting room moment where Jesus breaks the bad news. And when he says perishing, certainly he's got physical death in view, but based on the spiritual scope of the discourse in chapter 12, it makes perfect sense that Jesus also has eternal death in view. This is where we realize, along with Jesus' original listeners, that we are in far graver trouble than we ever, ever, ever thought. And by claiming that we're going to die Eternally, if we do not repent, Jesus is stressing the importance of repentance. And right then, all these questions just start floating to the surface, don't they? 
questions like, why is repentance necessary? Repentance is necessary because our greatest need is a spiritual one. Because our greatest enemy is a spiritual one. It is our own sin. And it's important to view sin the way God does because we oftentimes minimize it in our lives, don't we? We justify our sin. We don't think it's that bad. Uh, oftentimes, sin can, it can be fun for a season. It can feel good to, li- to, to live out or act out upon or dwell on some lustful, fleshly desire. It can feel good to, to, to take this path in life that's all about you, that's it's self-centered and selfish and full of pride. We justify our sins. We walk around all the time with this mindset, you know what, I know it's wrong. But really, is it that bad? I mean, it's okay, right? Here's how sin is described in the Bible. First, sin breaks our relationship with God. The book of Hosea shows us that our sin is harlotry against a faithful and devoted God. Israel's covenant on faithfulness, which stems from her indwelling sin, is whoredom against a living God that loves her. Sin is intensely offensive to God. 1 John chapter 3 tells us sin is lawlessness. It is transgression against the holy law of God. Sin separates us from God. It makes us His enemies. So not only does sin break relationship with God, but sin kills us. Apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead because of our sin. We are children of wrath because of our sin. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 3 says, And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are enslaved to our sin. Just read Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 5 tells us that we are so completely depraved. We are holy and thoroughly saturated with our own sin. We are plagued by it and corrupted by it. Even our text for today shows us that the penalty that comes from unrepentant sin will come upon all of us universally. It says, no, I will tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's all of us. Guys, that's all of us. That's from, from those of you who on the outside look like the most pious and put together to those who on the outside look like the, the biggest train wreck. It's all of us. We all need to repent. Sin is not something that can be glossed over with a good bank account or a nice job or a good looking family or the right persona. It will kill us without discrimination. And yet even more terrifying, God tells us through the Apostle Paul that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Sin puts us on this speeding train bound for hell. Do you see? Sin is a very, very big deal. Sin not only offends God, it not only separates us from God, but it kills us thoroughly. So this bad news is so far worse than even sitting in a waiting room hearing from a doctor that your precious loved one is about to die. 
It's news that you're a sinner, that you're bound for hell, that you will perish eternally. So Jesus tells us to repent because we have this desperate, desperate, desperate need to repent. Which begs the question, what is repentance really? Well, repentance means to change your mind. Repentance is to turn. It means you're walking this way in life. You stop, you turn around, and now you're walking this way. And biblical repentance is turning from sin. You're walking in sin, you're turning from sin. And now you're going in a different direction. And if you want an amazing look at what genuine repentance looks like in somebody's heart, Psalm 51 is the place to go. Psalm 51 was a psalm written by King David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed in battle. So imagine as we read this, imagine David, after Nathan the prophet has brought these sins to his attention, he's completely brokenhearted over what has happened. Imagine this man in his room, crying out, singing these words to God. First, Psalm 51 shows us that true repentance includes a desire to be made clean to the choir master. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He wants to be made clean by a merciful God. True repentance also includes heartfelt confession. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. True repentance also includes this desperate plea for restoration. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. True repentance also includes being grieved over your sin and then changing your behavior. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you. David's now longing to teach the truth of God to other people rather than sit and dwallow in his own sin. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. Now he's singing to the praise of God as opposed to wallowing in his own sin. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare Your praise. For You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's pretty powerful, huh? 
Psalm 51 gives us this wide open look at a truly repentant heart. And we need to see it this morning. Because oftentimes we think repentance is saying a quick I'm sorry to God or to the person you offend. And there is no desire for purity. There's no genuine confession. There's no plea for restoration. There's no grief over sin. There's no change in behavior. Rather, true repentance is this radical transformation of the heart that facilitates a complete turn from sin. Yet the bad news continues. Because God's Word shows us that as much as we may want to follow David's Psalm 51 example and repent truly in our flesh, we just cannot do it. After all, how can dead people, people dead in their sins, how can a dead person bring themselves back to life? Have you ever seen a dead person will themselves back to life? How can a slave, someone who's a slave to sin, free themselves from the bondage of of slavery to sin? We can't do it. We cannot do the one thing that brings us life rather than death. We cannot cause ourselves or manufacture some way of turning from sin ourselves. We just can't do it. In fact, we actually only naturally go further and further and further down the road of sin, deeper and deeper and deeper into sin rather than out of it. Romans 8.8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is the predicament we are in as sinners. In our flesh, as sinful people, we cannot please God. We are in this place where we're We're sinners. We're bound for hell and we can't do anything about it. The news is bad. So you're in this spiritual waiting room, so to speak. And Jesus has just broken the bad news. It's not just bad news. It's the worst news. But as you're sitting there and you're weeping and you're crying and you're lamenting this truth that you're a sinner bound for hell, that you will die and perish forever, Jesus interjects. And he says, listen, your situation's bad. It's really, really, really bad. But I have good news. Because I'm going to do for you what you never could have done for yourself. And the good news is that if you repent, you will live. Remember verses 3 and 5? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's a conditional sentence. The flip side is that if you do repent, you will live. Now what we have to figure out is how can repentance save us? How can repentance bring us new life when Scripture clearly says that salvation comes by faith through grace alone? Well, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Theologian John Frame says this, Repentance too is the work of God in us. It is the opposite side of faith. Faith is turning to Christ. Repentance is turning from sin. You cannot have one without the other. Repentance is this turning from your sin and faith is this turning to Christ. You see, it's one motion. You're turning from sin as you're turning to Christ and you can't have one Without the other, you must turn to Christ in order to turn from your sin truly. And you must turn from your sin in order to turn to Christ truly. But remember, these are two sides but one 
coin. So we can affirm the cry of the reformers when they say sola fide, faith alone. Uh, we, we confess that with them, knowing that faith and repentance are two ways of describing one heart condition that's present, present when God saves a sinner. And this life-giving repentance, this genuine faith, are only possible through Jesus Christ. Remember we looked at Romans 6.23, but we only, we only looked at half the verse. The whole verse says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is this free gift of God in Christ Jesus from Him to you. Jesus is the initiator. He's the giver of the gift. He's the giver of new life. He's the giver of repentance and faith which brings about new life. God is the one who warns us of, our ju- of, of impending judgment. He's the one who pulls us out of our sin. He's the one who calls us to Himself. We do not bring ourselves to God. Jesus Christ has come to us. But Jesus is not just initiating repentance for us. He's also making this life-giving repentance uh, available and possible for us. And He does so by perfectly keeping the law that we break every moment of our existence. And by being this perfect, sinless substitute and by hanging on a cross and paying the penalty for our sins and enduring the wrath of God that we deserve and raising from the grave so that those who might repent, turn from their sin, and place faith in Christ, turn in faith to Jesus, might be forgiven and washed clean and given new life in Him forever, justified and redeemed. And this result of repentant faith is not just a better life. It's not just a better feeling. It is new birth. You receive a new identity in Christ. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ because He gives His people a new heart that is clean and washed, washed pure. So when God looks down on you, He doesn't see someone who's dead in their sin or a slave to sin or His enemy. Someone walking over here just totally polluted by their own, their own transgressions. And That's not what God sees. He looks down on you and He sees the blood of His Son Jesus Christ. He looks down on you and He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ who made that sort of restoration with this holy God possible for you. In Christ, you are a new creation. So the end result is we walk away from a text like this and we cannot take any credit whatsoever for ourselves from what God has done. The fact that you may sit here and know God as a, as a, a truly regenerate Christ follower has nothing to do with anything you've done or anything that you have ever deserved. The fact that you are even sitting here in church this morning, rather than laying in a gutter somewhere, it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ. So our response to a hard text like this is to praise the One who saves sinners. It's to, to worship the One who makes hard hearts soft. It's to glorify the One who makes rejectors, believers, and slaves free, and the unrepentant repent, and gives new life to those who are perishing. So worship is one way to respond to a passage like this. But there's another way. If you are a Christian in the room, if you've made that step by the grace of God and you've turned from your sin and you've turned to Jesus in truly repentant faith, 
you can respond to this text by continuing to repent. Yes, you repented once. Um, scripture is pretty clear that you, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot remove yourself from the grip of God. Um, so we're not talking about having to get saved over and over and over again. That's not what's happening. You've repented of your sin by God's grace. You've turned to Christ in faith. You are His forever. No one, not even yourself or the devil himself, could snatch you out of the hand of God. You are His child. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Yet as you know, until Jesus returns for us and His kingdom is fully realized, you continue to struggle and wrestle with sin here and now, day to day, moment to moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a, is a really cool text. Paul is writing this letter to a Christian church. So these are believers in Jesus Christ. And this is the second letter he has written to this particular congregation. And in chapter 7, he references the first letter. And this is what he says. Verses 8 and 9. I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. See what he's saying there? These people, even though they're believers, they've been saved by Jesus, are still wrestling and battling with with sin in the day to day. And Paul writes them a letter. He's not rejoiced that they're they're grieved over their sin. He's rejoiced that they're grieved because it's causing them to repent. So Paul is showing us it is so appropriate for Christian people to continually repent of their sin, to continually be grieved over your sin, and repent and repent. This means that we do not let sin go unchecked in our lives. We prayerfully inspect our hearts, examine our hearts, asking God to show us ways that we fall short, ways that we've been sinning against Him for the purpose of grieving us into repentance. So when you're sitting in traffic and you're annoyed, and you're frustrated, which happens a lot here in Boston, and someone cuts you off, and the next thing you know, before you can even like pull it back in, it bubbles up and it just comes out some rude comment out the window. Or a rude gesture. What do you do? How do you respond? As a believer, you repent. When you cheat on a test, when, when, when you're sitting there looking at a, a, an exam full of questions, and your mind goes blank, and your eyes drift over here to your neighbor's paper, and you see an answer, and it looks pretty good, and you write it down, and you walk out the room, and you cheated. As a believer, you get on your face before God, and you repent. If you're doing something shady at work, you repent. When your eyes or your affections linger a little bit too long on someone that is not your spouse, you get on your hands and your face before God, and you repent. When you're being short with your kids or impatient or whatever, you, you fall down before God and you repent of these things. As Christ followers, we are a people of continual repentance. But then also as Christ followers, we preach repentance to others, don't we? If you see a brother or sister in some unrepented sin, we go to them in love and we, 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 we lead them to the cross. We lead them to get on their face before the cross to repent before Jesus Christ. If there's an unbeliever at work in your neighborhood, in your family, preach to them this gospel, the good news. Jesus has done something to save those who are are lost in their sin. Just repent. 
Place faith in Jesus. It's yours. Yet still, there's another way to respond to this passage because not everyone is a truly repentant believer in Jesus Christ. And if that is you this morning, we are so thankful that you're here. We pray for you. We ask the God of heaven to bring you in the doors that you might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you have questions about God, if you're trying to figure out where you stand with God, that is awesome. We want to walk through that with you. But Jesus has strong, strong words. And the bad news is you're still walking this way. And the good news is Jesus has done everything possible, regardless of how hard-hearted you've been in your life. Nothing you could do could ever negate the, the power of what Jesus is offering you. He's done everything to make this turn this way completely possible. But our text tells us that you ought to be repenting with urgency. Look at verses 6-9. to nine. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This is a parable about the urgency for repentance. In Scripture, the fig tree oftentimes represents the nation of Israel. That's what I think is happening here, but at the very least, um, the, the parable and the truth of it is being applied to the crowd and to us as listeners. In the parable, there's this fig tree. It's not bearing fruit. We know that fig trees, once they were mature, would bear fruit every single year. But this one has gone three years with no fruit, and that is a problem. The man doesn't want to use the space in the ground for this unfru- unfruitful tree. Uh, he, he, he doesn't want to waste the nutrients in the soil for this unfruitful tree. O- originally, he just wants to cut it down. In other words, God's people have not been bearing the fruit of repentance. They have been, been unfaithful to God and they will be judged. And it's this amazing, sobering picture of God's long-suffering patience with His people. Yet at the same time, It makes it so clear that God also does not condone the nation's unfaithfulness and will not put up with it forever. Yet even more amazing, God continues to be long-suffering and merciful. The vine dresser is going to tend the tree. He's going to break up the soil so roots can get at the nutrients. He's going to fertilize it. He's going to do everything that he can to help this tree be fruitful. It's a last chance. But if the tree remains unfruitful, it's getting cut down. And that's exactly the thought the parable ends with, right? If the tree bears fruit, great. If not, cut it down. The point is, time is short. And as it is for Israel, mercy, the mercy of God, the merciful gift of God is right there for you. But know the urgency of the situation because judgment is coming. So if you sit here today and you've never placed faith in Jesus, you've never turned from your sin in repentance, turned to Christ in faith, Jesus' call to you this morning is to repent. And Jesus wants you to know that if you repent, you will live. 
So this morning, you're not sitting in a hospital room. You're not talking to doctors. You're sitting in church, sitting underneath the authority of God's holy word. And we've heard the bad news. All unrepentant sinners, they're going to perish. We've heard the good news. Not just the good news, the best news. Jesus has done everything humanly possible, everything necessary for sinners like us to be saved for all of eternity, to be restored into God's presence, to be counted as sons and daughters of the Almighty God. So you've heard the bad news, and you've heard the good news. The question is, will you repent? That is the question we each have to answer for ourselves. Will you repent? Jesus' encouragement is repent and live. Repent and live. Please pray with me. God, we take Your Word so seriously. And we thank You that while we were in such a grave situation, We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You were willing to suffer and die for us. We praise You, Lord Jesus. We worship You today. I pray that You would just cultivate a heart of repentance in each one of us. Help us, God, to turn to You. Help us to love You and serve You, God. I pray that You would help us not to turn to You out of fear of judgment alone, Lord, but because we've come to to know and encounter the gracious and the amazing love of God for us through Jesus Christ. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.